Christy Bilbrey. Right after college, I started my career in the Senate press office and then the White House. For the next seven years, I worked in corporate marketing before starting my own business. As soon as I did, the one thing I realized that none of those experiences taught me was how to market myself. Promoting yourself can mess with your head. Discovering brand storytelling and learning how to put it to work in my messaging saved my business. Once I learned this, I started teaching other business owners how to put it to work in their business as well. I created the Business That Story Built podcast to help strengthen the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell others. Audiences crave the human side of businesses. They want to get to know you, follow you, and interact with you outside of the buying experience. This can be intimidating to say the least. If you're ready to take your mindset and your messaging to the next level, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited to be back in the PR series, and we are going to be talking on a really interesting topic today, the ethics of AI and PR. We brought on a really cool specialist you guys are going to enjoy hearing from. It is Casey Myers, and he is a professor of public relations and director of graduate studies at the School of Communication at Virginia Tech. His work focuses on media history, political communication, and laws that affect public relations practice. He's the author of Public Relations History, Theory, Practice, and Profession, of Money and Politics, Campaign Fundraising in the 2020 Election, and is the co-author of the fourth and fifth editions of Mass Communication Law in Virginia. He's a frequent commentator about public relations, political campaigns, and legal issues, having been quoted in several media outlets, including Time, Bloomberg, Fox News, The LA Times, The Hill, and The Associated Press. He also writes and speaks on the ethics of AI and PR, which is a topic that we are going to dive into today. So you have a very unique niche of being at the intersection of communications and the law. So I'm just curious, what drew you to that space? Well, I, I saw it as an under-researched area for public relations. And now we, we when we talk about public relations, we mean so many different things. So mm -hmm. it's uh, strategic communication or just communication and uh, you know corporate comms and things like that. So that is, it intersects into this umbrella of just sort of strategic comms or comms and law. And what I was noticing was that we had a lot of scholarship out there about media law, but media law is really not the only kind of law that affects communication practice. So communication practice is affected by corporate law, is affected by uh, a variety of First Amendment laws, intellectual property laws, contract laws. And so that intersection really interested me uh, as an attorney looking to transition into being a professor and looking at what I was going to study and what I was going to specialize in. And so it was just a natural fit. And mm -hmm. in writing it, I've, I have not been at a loss for content uh, <laughs> over the last 10 years. I mean, there's so much that's developing and changing and really is um, an exciting field. Oh, I, I can believe it. And my gosh, there's so much going on right now. So I also I also wanted to ask as a student and a professor of PR history what is a lesson that you think companies today can learn from PR's past 
Oh, so much. I mean, PR's past really informs the future. And so a lot of times, I think when we talk about public relations history and the development of PR, we think of it as just a time-bound thing. You know, mm -hmm. what happened 20 years ago? What happened 100 years ago? That That's then, this is now. But really, now is in the, in the current environment that we live in is a byproduct of those eras. And so if we look at things like why is PR the way it is? Why do we define it the way that it is? Why do we do certain things? Why are ethics so important? A lot of that is informed by our historical past. And so our historical past really does impact the, the present and the future of the field. And so I found so many parallels if we look through history and PR, uh, different cases that come up about uh, uh, crises or ethics or law or whatever, it really does have a lesson for contemporary practitioners. Yeah. So what what would you say might be one lesson um, that would be apropos for today and especially kind of related to diving? It seems like so many people are diving headfirst into AI. And what, what do you think uh, we should be thinking about that maybe in the past there have been either good or bad and we can look to? as we right. dive into this. So AI is a disruptive technological force. And we have, as communicators, lived through other disruptive eras of technology. So even within our current you know, times, so social media 20 years ago is a disruptive force for the communications field. The internet 30 some odd years ago is a disruptive force. Uh, when we get into, you know, even the 1970s, we see things like fax machines emerge. That That's a dis somewhat of a disruptive force. And uh, going back 100 years ago, plus a big disruptive force within communications was the telegraph. And, mm -hmm. and you see, you know, the speed of communication, the way that people are able to effectively communicate in a, uh, to each other without any kind of intermediary, uh, the fact that it connects a lot of people. And so that really, that telegraph uh, invention spurred on the growth of public relations because you had businesses that had to be more accountable, businesses that could communicate to uh, other subsidiary type companies and shipping and manufacturing. And so what emerged from that is a kind of a more professionalized PR field. So we as communicators, professional communicators, are sort of born out of technological innovation and change. So AI is no different. That's going to change the field of comms. It's not going to replace the field of comms, and, and we'll get to that probably later in the podcast. But you know, the discussion around you know is AI going to take my job is is as a real one. I mean, that's being discussed, but that's been a discussion about every type of technological innovation. How is my job going to change? Am I going to be replaced? Is what I do going to be the same? Is it going to be valuable? And the answer to all that is is that. Typically, what happens is the technology is absorbed into the practice, it's utilized, and now we think of it as indispensable to it. No one today is, is arguing seriously, I think, that you know social media shouldn't be part of comms or that the internet shouldn't be a part of communication strategy. It just is. It's just taken mm -hmm. for granted. And I think you know, 10 years from now, if we come back and have this interview, we'll be talking about AI in the same way. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty accurate. Now what do you see on the on the practitioner side within PR? How are you seeing AI used effectively um, in terms of, we're going to branch into ethics a little bit, but just kind of looking broadly at it, 
um, how are you seeing really effective, effective ways, maybe an example? So there are two, I would describe the current status of AI as in two camps. You have people that are embracing the technology and people that are resistant to the technology. And those who are resistant, they're, they're coming at it from a standpoint of not uh, feeling comfortable with some of the ethical dimensions of it. So when we talk about, about AI, and I think this is important for kind of the listeners, you know, AI is an umbrella term for a lot of different types of AI. And so when we talk about like chat GPT, we're talking about generative AI. And so something that's going to generate content, that's a little different than driverless car AI, which is a whole nother issue, a big, a big change coming in the, in the field of automotion, automotive and, and kind of legalities around that. So when we talk about generative AI, I think some people are reluctant to use it because they feel like, well, there's some disingenuousness to it. I'm hired as a professional to produce content. And then I'm just turning it over to this generative system to create content. And that's deceptive to the client. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one camp. Mm -hmm. The other camp is, is that people are using it uh, to enhance their work. They use it as an editor. They use it as a cost cutting mechanism to create maybe some, some charts or plans, or uh, maybe they're looking at it to create, uh, to, to use as a kind of a, um, an editor more than like a uh, word spell check or something like that, or even another person. So, so it enhances the quality of their content. So in that category of person, I think that a lot of them acknowledge that AI is something that can really help them as a tool. And they're on AI, they're learning, they're saying, okay, where my skill and expertise is going to come in with AI is going to be in my prompts. Uh, and the way that I set up the review. And I think they're transparent about using it as a tool. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll see if it'll be interesting to see in the next five, 10 years, if that transparency about I'm using this as a tool has to be disclosed as readily as it is now, because it'll become yeah. more normalized. Okay. Where I think a lot of challenges emerge is for the new practitioner. You know, so at the student side, so I teach PR students every year going out into the workforce, it's incumbent upon us in the educational field to say, okay, these are the responsible usage. And so we've seen some kind of examples where people may create a content through generative AI, and that content creates these manufactured quotes or these manufactured uh, statistics. And you can't just put that out there because that is both dishonest and inaccurate and, and erodes the trust in the field. And so understanding the contours of AI and where it can be used for good and where it can be used for nefarious reasons is, is important. And I think the more sophisticated the user, the more you get in and you use the tools, you kind of see that delineation. From the academic side, are you, are they starting to talk about having classes about how to use AI in the workplace in, in terms of what we're talking about with the communications and PR field? Because like you said, for the new practitioners who are coming into the field, this is where they, you know, if it's a more sophisticated user, yes, you, you know, I need to make sure that these are not manufactured quotes. Like you said, does this statistic have a source? Am I checking that source? Um, and we're probably not there yet because this is just so brand new, but are those things that, that you see coming down about, okay, how do we, how do we become responsible 
in the way that we utilize this and the way that we train people who don't have previous experience in the industry how to use this? Well, on the academic side, I, I will just back up a little. I, I think that there's a lot of discussion about what you just said within the trades mm -hmm. and then within the professional industry. I think on the academic side, there's a lot of um, concern about AI in general from an academic honesty standpoint. This is a disruptive technology. So from an academic side, are we now just going to get all these kind of AI generated papers? Nobody's going right. to really do their work anymore. How do we detect it? Because they can then take the generative AI, put it through another AI to make it plain language. We're not going to necessarily have an AI tracker like sure. you would have with like turnitin.com or some of these other plagiarism detections, because it's a little different than plagiarism. It's, it's manufactured content. So I think there's a lot of concern about that. Like, how do we get our hands around that? And that is an academic issue writ large. Within sure. public relations, I think there is a question of how do we train people to use this tool? And I know in my own classes, I have thought about how are we going to train students to responsibly use this tool? Because if I train them not to use it, if I ban it, and they say, okay, we're not having AI in the classroom in this PR writing class or PR campaigns class or whatever, am I really preparing people to go in the workforce by doing that? I mean, it's sort of the same as saying I'm banning the internet. You know, you're never going to be in a work situation where that's not a tool that's available. So I think it's incumbent upon me as a faculty member and on the end and the academic side of PR to say, okay, we're going to train you in this and you're going to be a sophisticated user of it because it can be used to, to do better work. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm thinking about right now, and I just taught a class in the spring, which was a course on strategic comms. And there's a lot of different majors in that class. Uh, it's a minor capstone course for non-com majors. So there's people all the way from engineering to business mm -hmm. to everywhere in between. And I introduced ChatGPT because it had come out in the, in the fall of 22. And I said, how many people have ChatGPT? And error used it. And it was like a lot of reluctance and no hands. And then I <laughs> pulled out the account. And I said, here's ChatGPT. And they all had used it. I mean, wow. they all aware of it. Uh, they just didn't know where I stood on the issue. And that, that you know, I, I understand that. But the, the, the thing is, is that we're going to have to train our students to say, okay, these are some good queries. These are how to use the editing functions in this generative AI. This is where it works. This is where it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, fictitious quotes and statistics, obviously, are a no-go for the obvious reasons. But also, like, just using the the machine or using the the technology to produce the content, there's a certain amount of laziness in that. And right. your work product as a professional needs to be reflected. It, it can't just be supplanted by a computer program. And so finding that balance, I think is going to be important, but it is top of mind. And it's interesting. So my background, I, a lot of brand story thought leaders, those are the types of people that I work with. And I feel like, you know, my personal thought is that anybody needs to develop their personal brand, whether they want to own their own business or just have their own career, which means that you need to differentiate yourself, set yourself apart. And so I would think even from that standpoint, um, if that could be ingrained in both people who are on the business side already, as well as students coming up, okay, well, if you want to stand out at all and all you're producing 
is something that isn't you, then you're not standing for anything, saying anything really unique about you that's going to set you apart. So I don't know, maybe that will play a part in helping people see I can't just do that. I don't know. Well, I guess time will tell. That's such a great point because the generative aspect of it is there's a fine, I mean, there's a voluminous amount of content in these generative systems, but there's a finite amount, right? So like if I can get the 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 generative AI technology to generate X and someone else can put in the same query and generate X, what's the differentiating factor there? Right. You know, and why don't I just do it myself? Why would I hire somebody? So that that is a that is that goes down the question of am I going to be replaced by AI? And the answer to that may be yes if you use it in this sort of uh, sloppy way or in this way that it does not allow you to really provide expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. So on the on the regulatory side, I know we've seen a lot of seeing Sam Alton go in front of Congress and, and, you know, there've been a lot of hearings. What do you anticipate? I know you keep close tabs on this. What do you anticipate as being highly likely that PR, PR pros should be aware of regarding government regulation of AI that would impact them and the way that companies communicate with their audiences? Right. So Government regulation is an ongoing discussion. And what I would tell our people listening to this podcast is, you know, with this conversation, this is going to be a dated conversation, you know, (laughs) and what's going to be six months from now may be different. So it is something that they're going to have to keep aware of and they're going to have to follow. And and I'm following it the best I, I can, but there is so much percolating within the technology that, you know, the issue of you know, June 2023 may not be the issue of August 2023. One of the things that we've seen, though, is there are kind of regulatory issues circulating around kind of three main items. One is privacy. Mm-hmm. Another is discrimination. And another one is um, intellectual property. And so those are three things that are part of the larger discussion. I would say for a, um, for PR practitioners, the intellectual property side of it is it's going to be significant because the U.S. Copyright Office has said that, you know, if it is just a purely generate AI-generated work product, it doesn't get intellectual property protection. And so I could create a fabulous campaign that does not even have, you know, you, you lose your your you know i your your ip value of it by using a tool overusing a tool i might say uh in a way that generates good content but it's not you know it's not copyrighted at all and so the and by extension that means that it's fair use for anybody to use because it's not protected under the law so that's sort of an immediate concern i think out there mm-hmm. the other things that that are emerging is you know with the discrimination aspect of ai you know there's a lot of automated uh, reviews of things within the workforce in terms of you know recruiting, and the government has really uh, expressed concern about you know could that be used in a way that creates unintended discrimination because the AI is built in a way that has this sort of built-in discriminatory selection process, and that is part of a bigger narrative I think in AI, which is AI is created AI is created by individuals. And it is created by individual knowledge and it's an aggregate of individual knowledge or, or, you know, man-made or human-made knowledge. So 
it, it contains the, all the biases that exist within humankind. And so can that be reflective in a, um, uh, in a AI system? I think another kind of on the horizon thing that's out there is that when we have decision-making that is um, made through AI, and there's a lot of questions around, are there going to be decisions made, you know, regulatory decisions or, you know, sort of application decisions made through an AI system because it's just simpler. What, at what point can you say, okay, we want human eyes on right. this. We don't want a machine making those decisions. And I think that's top of mind mm -hmm. uh, for, for a lot of lawmakers. Absolutely. I think that's top of mind for a lot of citizens at large. Um, so for, for folks on the PR side, whether they're inside companies or inside agencies, what would be questions that you would pose that they should consider before adding, we'll speak specifically about generative AI processes into their, um, into their workflow? Right. And so one of the things in this kind of thing is that there's there's a lot of legal issues and a lot of ethical issues. And what I would advise first off to any practitioner is to consult with their own attorney about what they may see as a, a legal issue. And, and a lot of times when we're talking about AI, you know, we think about the law as there's the law, but, you know, the law varies. I mean, there's state regulations that are coming in on AI. There's federal regulations, there's uh, agency regulations, and then there's an international context to it as well. And so particularly for those organizations dealing with the EU, there may be some different nuances of law that are coming out. So I would say, you know, check with your attorney and your, and your if you have a, a serious legal question or just any legal question, uh, and don't necessarily just rely on what you're getting off the internet or, or listening to this podcast, because it's, it's, it's going to evolve. It's going to be more complex than what we're talking about in the future. Um, but one of the things that I would say is first of all, with the, the IP aspect of it, really looking to how much of my work is going to be AI generated and how much of it is going to be generated through the professional person, because that seems to matter in terms of getting that copyright protection. Now, in the United States, copyright is instantaneous. You know, you make the copy, you make the work, it becomes copyrighted. But if it doesn't have enough human interaction with it, then it's not going to meet that threshold of having um, uh, originality. And is there so, a threshold yet? There is, there's no, there is the acknowledgement that there is a threshold, but there is no bright line threshold. And so if you, I was researching this back in the spring and the copyright office came out and said, look, you know, you could have a mix, uh, but it's got to be more human than machine. And, you know, what aspect of it is that? And that gets into questions like queries. I mean, are queries enough interaction to create originality is, is a, you know, an edited piece. So I write it through generative AI and then edit it on my own. Is that enough? So that's something that's going to be fleshed out in the court system over the next, you know, five, 10 years. And I think it's going to be a major issue. So that would be one question. Uh, on the ethics side, my, my question would be, are we being transparent with clients and with our, you know, people we're communicating with what's producing our content? And if we're not being transparent, what do we need to, to say? And then I think a third thing, and this goes into a liability issue, is 
because generative AI, particularly written generative AI, creates a lot of these sort of, uh, I guess, phantom content where mm -hmm. it's, you know, made up quotes and things like that. Don't fall into that and don't and make sure that you're doing your due diligence to check. And, and then the kind of as a final thing, and this is more strategy focused, there's a lot of expectation in communications today of authenticity. And if you use generative AI to produce what is supposed to be authentic messaging, uh, then that lacks authenticity. Uh, and for a lot of people, it questions uh, the the motive and the, the the true value of the organization. So you have to keep those that that in mind as well. Like, what am I trying to communicate? And we've seen some really bad examples of uh, attempts to be authentic in an inauthentic way, and they get called out, and it causes reputational harm. Yeah. So I, I think for, for companies and for anyone in the PR profession, probably we're going to start to see companies come out with sets of guidelines in how they use it, what type of oversight they have, what is shared with clients or their different public's audiences and how that's done. Because right now it's just kind of free for all. If you want to share, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. And um, so maybe as people who are want to be leaders in on the PR side in using this, it would be to be on the forefront of here's what's going on. And we and maybe that's how they kind of set themselves apart is we're being very transparent. And here's what we're doing. And, you know, I don't know, because it sounds like that's probably where everybody's going to end up having to do that at some point down the road. But um, all things that everyone should be thinking about today and standardizing kind of like you say what how are we overseeing this how are we checking to make sure there aren't these fictitious quotes and statistics and who is doing that what else should we be checking for which leads into another another question is um how do you recommend watching for bias in the research and content that's generated by ai so that's a great question and a tough one to answer because <laughs> part of what's generated, I don't know that you're going to necessarily know mm -hmm. what it's pulling from. Right. So that goes back to due diligence on the part of the user. And I, and I love what you said earlier about, you know, companies maybe can differentiate themselves in the way that they take a lead and how to, to be transparent if we are waiting for the government or we are waiting for the technology to kind of put the guardrails up that protect uh, on certain issues, we're going to be waiting a long time. It's a protracted process. We're also, you know, the people that can regulate our work, the easiest is going to be ourselves. And so we have to be responsible stewards. I do think to your question about bias and statistical uh, reporting or just bias and statements is the fact checking that has to go on from what is generated. Mm -hmm. Do not take what's generated as an absolute truth with a big T truth. I mean, you have to look at it and say, okay, well, where are they pulling that from? I mean, is that something that's made up? It may not be made up, but it may be from a questionable source. It right. may be something that is only telling part of the story. And there is so much fake news out there. You know, if I'm if I am the machine and I'm looking at an aggregate of content, some of that content is going to be high quality and some of that content is going to be low quality. And and what am I pulling from? And so that's where the user it, got, it throws back on the user mm -hmm. to have to do uh, the homework 
and to have to do the careful reading and review. Yeah. And I think that's where it'll be interesting. I think it'll probably be a combination of industry with um, both people saying, okay, what do we even need to watch for within the companies, within the agencies, and who's going to be responsible for that? And who's responsible for knowing what's next that we need to watch for? I mean, I, I think a lot of people listening probably saw with the Pentagon, you know, the recent deep fake AI, and it's just getting harder to tell um, because I know you've written about there's one thing with Photoshop, but what we're wow. seeing today is not not so easily discernible between the two. Absolutely. So how so, do we have somebody in place who can, who do we, and and that's probably going to start a new industry, which I know they said, there's what you're going to see is there's going to be the AI companies creating it. And then you're going to have the AI companies who are created to kind of be watchdogs or, or just tech companies at large who are kind of, here's how you can really dive in and, and kind of check your AI and know what's what. Uh, that you're so right. I mean, the question right now, so what the difficulty right now is that we're not in a, we're not in a place where all of this is normalized. Right. And we don't have, you know, the mechanisms necessarily out there to say, okay, the detector said that's fake. And then it goes right. into the fake bin. And this is true. And it goes into the truth bin. And with, so take deep fakes, for instance, mm -hmm. deep fake technology is advancing so rapidly and so sophisticatedly that it is hard to tell. I mean, it used to be that you could look at a deep fake and say, yeah, that's fake. But today, you know, it's becoming seamless technology and the barrier to the entry point of the technology is so low. So a lot of advanced tech, what, what keeps it out of kind of nefarious usage is that it's not that widespread because it's too expensive to use. But if you have, you have the ability for anyone to use it at a very low cost or no cost, uh, just look on Instagram at all of the kind of things that you can do with photos, or you look on the internet and see what all you can do with photos. There's a lot of technology out there to create um, you know, still photography into animated discussions and fake uh, fake news and fake uh, pictures. And that was what you were talking about with the Pentagon. And there was a real result from that as well. I, I believe that the stock market went down based on that photo. So the the thing that we're dealing with right now is we can we have to be good stewards. We have to do our due diligence. It's harder and harder to do our due diligence because it's harder to identify. And so that's where there's going to be some sort of mechanism that needs to come in. And we're not there yet. Right. But all I would say to, to everyone is that we still have to, to fact check and we still have to triple check and we still have to look at things with a, you know, verification in mind. Right, right. What would you say? Well, I guess it's still. I was going to say, what would you say are good resources to kind? Of, well, this this part I think does exist. Hopefully, I know some of these we're waiting for for companies to step in and create what we need. But what would you say right now are some good resources just for folks to stay on top of technology trends? And maybe that's even just setting up Google Alerts, which there's another form of AI. But how would you recommend just for companies who say, hey, we want to be on the up and up? We need to know what to look out for. Are there any resources out there that you would say, um, you know, here's where you can go to kind of see what's new, what to expect that you've seen? Well, this is what I would say. 
and, and I don't have any like go to this website and it's going to tell you everything you need to know. There's a lot of content out there in the trade. Yeah. It's a lot of content out there on the internet. Read it, consume it, stay up to date. Look at the government's website, stay up to date. But it's sort of like this. When you're learning to drive a car, you go to driver's ed and they give you all of this background about driving a car, but you really never learn to drive until you put the key in the ignition and you right. turn it on and you drive. Right. And then you learn through the process of use and you learn, you know, how to how to avoid a pothole or what to do at a four way stop or what what to do in, in, in a various number of contexts that come up that may not be in the manual. Mm -hmm. so what I would say to organizations or individuals looking at AI is to get involved with AI by using it mm -hmm. and not necessarily. And by that, I don't mean like start producing your content with AI generation and putting it out there, but don't have the hesitancy uh, this is this is something that is too problematic or too intimidating or too new for me to, to get involved with. Get involved with it and start using it. And you will learn a lot about the contours of the technology and the power of it by just using it. And so you'll see, well, you know, AI can really do a very good, um, you know, Gantt chart or something. Right. Um, doesn't do a very good job at creating this kind of content. Or when I typed in this query, you get all of this fake stuff out of AI. You got to flag that and know that. And, and the only way you're going to really learn that is by, by use. I think we're now, there's a lot of people in the industry, you know, using AI, but there's still some hesitancy out there about like, how do we, how do we really get our hands around this? You know, I'm not paid to, you know, put a, a query in and generate you know, written content, I'm going to write it myself. And, and that's fine. I, I, I don't, I don't uh, disagree necessarily, but I do think getting involved with the technology at, at a user level is probably one of the greatest tools and the greatest teachers that you can have. And this is a, a little bit of a separate topic, but, but since I have you here, what kinds of shifts are you seeing at, in social media becoming the primary news source for multiple generations and how do you see traditional media responding to that i know this is a little different than the ai i know there's some tie-ins but just kind of talking about um at large the shifts of pr and the way communications is disseminated and received it seems like more and more generations even my in-laws generation is going to social media and finding a lot of news content there that that is so true, and one I just ended up doing some research about mainstream media and uh, where where it is, and and just to operationalize a little bit, mainstream I think of as just our traditional broadcast and maybe even cable uh, television, traditional radio, traditional print, and, and it's in decline. I mean, in decline in, in viewership, it's a fragmented market. Uh, more and more people are looking to other sources of information than to uh, sort of what so-called mainstream media podcasts, for instance, a very popular outlet finding out information and people can listen to them on their own time. They can put it at double speed. They can speed up, speed down, whatever they want to do to get the information that they need. And so it's really, it's created a challenge. And we've seen mm -hmm. a lot of that even within the news, you know, where uh, people on podcasting, have created their own channels or whatever, and they are they are providing news, and that is sort of getting into the market share of traditional cable news. Um, I, I think that mainstream media is is here 
and it's going to continue to exist, but in a less less dramatically forceful way because of the alternative uh, sources of content. I think that social is is already a predominant um, force within giving people information. Uh, and I think that this kind of dovetails a little into our AI conversation is that because of socials, um, sort of the democratic nature of social, uh, it provides everybody a platform to put what they want out there. And that creates a lot of opportunity for disinformation. And then when you combine that with a low barrier of entry for AI and deep fake technology and doctored photos or whatever, that can proliferate. And there's some true bad actors in social who want to put out false information that is intentionally misleading. And what happens is, is if the user doesn't know, you know, what they're looking at, they're going to believe something that may not be true. And that's how we end up with a lot of disinformation in society, which is cyclical in that it also affects the overall uh, view of news in general and the skepticism toward journalists and mainstream media and media in general. So I, I would say to PR practitioners, yeah, you're going to see a, a, a continued uh, dominance of social, a continued decline of traditional, but you're going to see a heightened um, disinformation because of the nature of social and the nature of AI becoming more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. And just with, you know, earned media and um, and PR, it's interesting when I when I interview kids who are coming out of school or they're still in school and I ask them about what experience they have with media, so many say they just start talking about social media and almost forget that there's <laughs> there are other things that exist. And even with uh, journalists, there's so much when they when they create content, you know, put out an article, it's also going on Twitter and so many people are responding to it and receiving it from the social side even when it is, you know, it, whether it's a digital publication or print and that they have a digital version of, I just feel like it's being consumed. So yeah. It is interesting about that you mentioned Twitter because it's also kind of this, so traditionally within news, you know, the mainstream news covers the news and then it trickles out and then it filters through and then we get it on social. But what we've seen a lot of journalists, and then this may be changing in the recent developments of Twitter, but a lot of journalists are on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so Twitter itself generates news ideas that then get reflected back. So it's it's not a filtering down, but this kind of almost like a filtering up from social into the mainstream and then back into social again. And right. so they, and, and journalists from from studies that I've read are much more involved in, in Twitter than the average Twitter user or the average mm -hmm. American. So, you know, we a lot of our news that we see on social that filters back through the mainstream is actually news that originates in social and then gets filtered back through us. And so that's just an interesting, that's a, that's a new dynamic of news making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In terms of something that you have, you have some work underway in um, researching a pretty huge combination, PR's development in domestic politics, international affairs, religious movements, corporate communication, entertainment promotions, and social causes. I know you're still in the midst of this research, but I'm wondering if there is a common thread maybe that you're seeing woven throughout these 
that perhaps you can give us a sneak peek of? Well, I think that one of the things that all of that is 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 a part of a larger narrative about how PR develops. And that goes back to some of the first questions we had uh, when we first started talking about, well, what's relevant about history in today's world? Well, a lot of people believe that public relations, and they think of it kind of as the uh, kind of the archetype, is is a corporate comms type of thing. It's a, it's going out from an organization. The content goes into the the mainstream media, and the mainstream media interacts with the the PR practitioner through the corporation or through the business, or maybe through a PR firm. What that research says is is that is true, but the development of PR comes from a lot of different sectors. And so some of the best PR out there in terms of effective communication, and I, I would say like the goal of PR is attitudinal and behavioral change. So some of the most effective PR out there is political PR. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the message is necessarily the best, but the way that the message is communicated oftentimes results in attitudinal behavioral change in a, in a significant way. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of when you're looking at kind of the development of PR, you know, some of the best PR that was then absorbed into kind of corporate comms comes from a political tradition. Same thing comes from social movement. Social movements uh, oftentimes would not self-identify as doing PR. Uh, they are advocating for a cause. But a lot of what they do, their their mechanism of communicating is PR, and oftentimes they have a very refined public relations strategy, and those public relations strategies are what creates, you know, a, you know, widespread social attitudinal change on a variety of issues that we've seen, you know, uh, for the last two hundred years. And so, one of the things that I think that work is trying to say is is that we need to have a very expansive view of what PR is and where it's being practiced because it's practiced in a lot of different sectors, uh, including entertainment, including education, including, you know, politics, et cetera. And so it's not just a, a byproduct of business or a byproduct of PR firms, but it's a byproduct of a lot of aspects of society that have to advocate for a cause and communicate with publics and stakeholders. Yeah. It's, you're right. It's coming from everywhere. And I think the lessons to be learned, we should look beyond just what we would consider today to be traditional PR. Very Absolutely. good point. Very good point. Well, fascinating conversation. Is there any any final thought that you want to leave folks with um, on any of the topics that we've discussed today? Well, the uh, first, I want to thank you for having me on and, and I've enjoyed talking. The only thing that I would say to, to the listeners and we've talked a lot about, you know, AI and law and regulation and the future of the field is that we are living in a very fast paced developing uh, communications world. And particularly with AI, you know, what is true today may not be true tomorrow. And the technology is outpacing the regulation and, and, and honestly, it's outpacing use in some respects. You know, how do we implement this new thing? And so what we're going to see in the next five years, I think, is a rapid transformation of the field. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be replaced. I think it's, it can be used as a tool for good or for bad. It just depends on who is the, the professional behind it. And so I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for public relations and communicators in the future. Very well said. Casey, thank you so much for joining. Where can listeners connect with you? Well, I'm on Twitter at Casey Myers, or if uh, they want to find me on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn as well. 
Uh, and, you know, I try to talk about topics related to what we talked about today. So happy to connect. Wonderful. And we'll have those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next week, take care. To succeed in business, you need brand awareness, authority, and trust. To get those, you need visibility. Podcasts offer each of these. It's a unicorn platform because it gives you the scarcest resource in digital marketing, attention. Did you know that 80% of podcast audiences listen to the entire episode and more than 50% consider buying from a brand or individual that they discover on a podcast? Building your own show and audience takes years. Grow faster by guest speaking on other podcasts to get more leads, build your SEO and strengthen your brand. To learn how my agency can help, email me at hello at christybilbury.com.